if we're working in a different culture, we have to respect the language and the culture around us. And children live in a really different culture to the one that you and I live in as adults. They live in the culture of childhood. And that has its own distinct language, rules, values, communication patterns, space. Everything's different. So I think if we are going to really respect our clients and respect children, we need to be able to relearn that language of play in all its nuances and be prepared to be able to engage and work within that language. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Ever thought about what play therapy is all about? Well, in today's podcast, I speak with Jackie Short, who's the director of the Sydney Centre for Creative Change. Jackie and I talk about what's play therapy, what's it like to work with young people therapeutically, and I suppose the differences that are there as opposed to working with adults. You'll see me grappling with the concept. It takes me a little while to pick up on it because it's kind of hard to pull it away from what it's like working with adults. So Jackie does an exceptional job in talking about working with young persons and how therapy and play um, assists in going out and allowing them to express themselves and find greater uh, safety and security, find out more about themselves and develop stronger bonds with not only the clinician, but also with others close to them. I think you're gonna find a lot of value out of this one. Welcome, Jackie, to the podcast. It's great to have you, you know, talking about play therapy, you know, your work in that space, being a psychologist and also the workshop, workshops and, you know, seminars that you do. So, you know, thanks for coming along today. Thank you very much for inviting me, Nat. It's great to see a growing interest in the field of creative therapies, particularly play therapy in Australia. Absolutely. Look, I, I actually have to admit that I know very little um, and, and hence why I reached out to, to find more about, find out more about this space because I work with adults, I work with couples, um, you know, the, the, the sort of younger age group is not someone I work with, um, is not, not sort of the age group I work with, but I'm fascinated to, to find out more about this space because I know that here in my practice we do offer, you know, child and adolescent sort of work um, and, you know, we've got, we've got the provision to, to, you know, assist young, young persons, but from a, from a play therapist perspective and someone who's willing to come onto the show with, with, with your experience, I think it's, uh, you know, fantastic to hear your voice. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. It's, it is really great to be here and talk about it because I think many of us in our profession are interested in children, are interested in supporting young people and it's not something that we really get a lot of training in or much understanding around and I think most of the clinical skills that we pick up in our various degrees and qualifications equip us reasonably well for working with adults and possibly with adolescents but not at all for working with children. So mm. I think when we are committed to really making a difference for our younger clients, we really do need some additional training and support and understanding of developmentally appropriate ways and evidence-based ways of engaging with and also supporting therapeutically young people to help make changes that, that they need to make too. Yeah. I don't recall at, 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 at any stage doing any training at, you know, at a university level in, you know, working with young, um, you know, the, the children's sort of space and certainly not play therapy. I'm not sure. Did you come across that at all for, for yourself? Zero, zero, zero amount of training in working with children. I did uh, developmental psychology. It was the only subject I got a HD in, which I was very excited about. So I think <laughs> that sort of was part of my trajectory in that direction, um, determining that. But I was always interested in children working with children, but really had no practical training in it. So it wasn't until I left and started working in the field that I gained some wonderful supervision, some excellent training and lots and lots of experience. So I think, I think it was in, only Piaget's work. My apologies. I think it was only Piaget's work that I recall, you know, from, from probably, probably a little bit more exposure than that, but, but certainly nothing that you could kind of say is, you know, um, on a, on a skills-based training level to, to go out and look at the, you know, the efficacy and, you know, the, the evidence base behind working with young, young persons. 
Yeah, that's really true. And certainly the the psychologists who come to do the courses with us currently also complain that even after getting a PhD in the field and working in for many years at, at university level, they come out with not a lot of really skill-based training. And I think it's something that is required in the industry once we actually get started. So it is that, um, yeah, that face-to-face stuff, I think, that we need to really grow our capacity to be able to work well in this space. Yeah, how did you get how did you get involved in the, you know, uh, whether it be in the play therapy or working with young persons space? How how did that all come about? When I left university, I my very first job was a research position in a hospital, Parramatta Hospital. I was working in the drug and alcohol unit and it was um, all the age of smoking cessation. So it was sort of early to mid-80s and there had been a lot of legislative changes to make smoking in workplaces more challenging and there was a lot more um, recognition of the health effects of smoking. So part of my job there was to run quit smoking groups for adolescents in schools as part of a research trial to see what was going to be effective or not. And it was the most unsuccessful clinical group I've ever run with adolescents um, because <laughs> everyone was just starting to smoke. So nobody wanted to stop. It was just kind of not something that was popular at all. But what was popular was the fact that you could get out of English math or science and come along to our quit smoking group and just show everyone how tough you are because you're smoking so in fact it's, and have a I cigarette it's, after that yeah exactly and and maybe during if you snuck out for that, just to go to the bathroom. So it was one of the most um uh, incredibly unsuccessful clinical experiences that i've had but i learned a lot from that project and what i learned was that change that we try and measure at face value is important. It's important to try and measure and assess what we're doing, but it's also really important to measure some of the unintended consequences of what we do. So while we had absolutely no effect in changing any of those young people's smoking rates who came along to our groups, what we did find in the in the experiment group that we're working in in those three project schools, and it was thousands of students that we surveyed before and after our intervention group, Compared to at the control groups where we weren't running, which were matched in as many ways as we could, we actually had a preventative effect in those schools. So our very presence to run quit smoking groups meant that less young people took it up because they recognised it wasn't a great thing to be doing. So it always really reminds me that sometimes it's hard to really measure change in our industry. And when we only measure what we're setting out to achieve and we don't have a more general measure of some of the other things that could be happening around, we miss out on some of those more subtle changes. And I think when I'm working with children now clinically, one one of the things that's very important for me to do is always establish and maintain relationships with those people who bring them in. So the parents and carers, referrers that are adults who have asked the child to come in for play therapy to maintain a close relationship with them because they're noticing changes. So when I'm assessing for the effectiveness of what we're doing, I'm not only looking for change in the room with the child, and how they engage with the play materials, how they are in themselves and how they might be with me. But I'm critically speaking with parents and other adults to see what effect the changes that are happening here are happening in the real world. It's really fascinating because I recall uh, when um, Francis Mirabelli came uh, for an APS meeting and was talking about this proposal of um, putting psychologists um, to the test, so to speak, where um, we could go out and try and demonstrate our value to, you know, the community by, you know, testing pre and post you know, measures for what does a psychologist offer and how can that be um, you know, demonstrated. And obviously that'll be a huge body of work about what do we measure, but uh, there's a big question about what are we measuring, you know, because at the moment most of us are probably just using a standard DAS, you know, looking at depression, anxiety, stress, sort of symptomatology within a week um, versus, you know, something that might be a little bit more robust over, over time or, or kind of, tell us a, a wider picture. So that's really fascinating that, that uh, there was a preventative um, uh, aspect, which that, that's a huge outcome. That's a really, you know, fantastic and successful outcome, but wasn't the targeted uh, outcome, which is, which is no. you know, surprising. And we wouldn't have known that had we not done those bigger picture measurements, which was wonderful to do. I think that what that also reminds me of is the importance whether we're doing studies at a university level in academia or whether we're doing real-life research 
to make sure that we always use mixed methods so we have qualitative as well as quantitative data that we collect. And I think when we're working and trying to, to establish effectiveness in our own spaces, to be able to speak to the critical stakeholders in any sort of intervention and see what effect it's having on their lives and their experience, I think is, is pretty critical too. So I think for my purpose, that's why it's very important to maintain those relationships with the, um, the parents of children. But I sort of digressed a little bit from the um, your original question, which was how I got started in the field. While I enjoyed doing the research and it was great getting those positive outcomes, not necessarily in the groups, but in the bigger communities that we were working in, I realised what I loved most was actually doing that face-to-face -face work and uh, ended up working in schools, doing school counselling for about 14 years of a variety of schools, primary and high schools, Catholic and private schools. And then more recently, in the last 15 years, I've been working in private practice. So I um, yeah, really, really love working with children and, and teenagers and families, although now I also do quite a lot of adult work as well. So I've got a fairly general practice, but most of what I'm currently doing in addition to the practices doing the training work at Sydney Centre for Creative Change, and that's predominantly in play therapy, but it's also in a range of other creative and expressive um, modalities, which is really helpful, I think, for anybody, particularly children, but really anybody for whom talking isn't just working. I think we can just go round and round and repeat stories without really much effective change. I know myself talking about things helps, but sometimes, sometimes if something's particularly stuck, something in addition to talking can help. And I think this is how it is effective for children because I don't think words are most children, particularly younger children's first language. I think the language that younger children tend to speak before they speak words, before they speak whatever native tongue they're raised in, is the language of play. And because it is children's natural language, it makes sense that we do therapy in that language. If you or I were zoomed up right now and landed in the middle of Italy, we wouldn't be doing therapy in English, we'd be doing therapy in Italian. So I think if we're working in a different culture, we have to respect the language and the culture around us. And children live in a really different culture to the one that you and I live in as adults. They live in the culture of childhood. And that has its own distinct language, rules, values, communication patterns, space, Everything's different. So I think if we are going to really respect our clients and respect children, we need to be able to relearn that language of play in all of its nuances and be prepared to be able to engage and work within that language. I think it's such a beautiful way to describe it and that's something that really kind of uh, uh, attracted me to, to speaking with you as well in reading your article in the APS, um, I think in the Insight uh, uh, magazine, where you spoke about that culture um, and, and, and how important that is. And it, it makes so much sense because, you know, adults and children are just so culturally different. We, we might live, you know, air quotes, in the same culture, same society, same community, but we've got very, very, very different cultures. You know, we're, we're, we're certainly at different developmental stages of our lives. We've got different responsibilities, as you say. We've got a different, completely different language, you know, one, one of play versus, you know, one of, you know, cognitive words and meaning and, you know, relational frames and, you know, a history of what all those things mean, the complexities, you know, very CBT sort of orientated um, versus that um, maybe that space of, as they say, creative and expressive, you know, spaces of, of, of play. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what what does, you know, what, what is play therapy, um, you know, maybe in its basis, basic form, um, and then we kind of maybe branch out to talk a little bit about how that might look or you, maybe you can even offer us some, some different examples of, of what, little parts might look like i'm just fascinated to know what happens inside your sessions <laughs> thanks dash for your interest and, um, and all those great questions i think play therapy <clears throat> is as broad an industry as counseling is and I was teaching at a psychology college for about 17 years and taught methods of counselling and we used to say that there's over 500 different methods of counselling and I, I think while that might seem quite extreme and quite large, I think there are three broad categories that counselling modalities fall in. There's the psychodynamic initially, there's the humanist and existential and then there's a the more solution-focused and CBT approaches and each of those has a different length of time of therapy 
each of those has a peculiar pattern of relationship between therapist and client. And each of those has a different theory base and evidence for that would suggest different methods of interaction and different methods of engagement. And similarly, play therapy has its origins within the psychodynamic tradition. So Anna Freud, who was uh, Sigmund's youngest daughter, really championed play therapy back um, two centuries ago. And there are still psychologists and other play therapists I know who work in Sydney from a psychodynamic play therapy perspective, and they work with young children for years doing psychodynamic play therapy. So that looks very different to someone more like me who's working from a humanist existential perspective, informed by what we would call child-led or non-directive approaches, which are more medium-term therapeutic interventions. And then there's very short-term solution-focused approaches, which look more at skill development or um, and are probably a bit better suited to older children or when there's a, speci a specific skill deficit that we're training for. So what play therapy looks like depends very much on the method that we're implementing of play therapy. So if I can tell you a little bit about the method that I feel most comfortable with, which is child-centred, it probably fits most neatly into a model that looks like a humanist, person-centred approach. So if you go back to Roger's videos with Gloria and Kathy back in the 70s and early 80s, you'll see him listening to and reflecting back what people are saying, not asking any questions, not leading, not labelling, not directing in any way. And in that process, through the relationship of care, of respect, of regard, of kindness, of genuine human connecting, that space of hearing and holding allows adults to be able to make sense of their own experience and to come to their own solutions and strategies. So that's the humanist perspective from an adult frame. And what we do in child-centred play therapy is exactly the same, but using toys and we call tracking or reflecting back what children are doing and saying. So children get a more felt sense of who they are, what's important to them, and are able to take control of the things that are important for them. So it's kind of hard to sort of say it um, without actually seeing what it looks like and to describe a little bit more what a room setup might look like for a younger child. They would come in, uh, I would have had a session with a parent, at least one or two sessions with a parent, parents ideally or carers to find out from them what their concerns are, what their concerns are for their child, what else they've tried. We do a really thorough assessment. I determine whether play therapy is even suitable because some parents are best supported by strategic help and support and parenting advice. Sometimes that's probably 50% of people I would see. I don't see children for counselling because it's the parents who can best do with that support. So... But if it is determined that it's useful for the child to come in for an assessment, the child comes in initially with the parent and I explain to both what we're going to be doing today and show them the room. The parent then waits in the waiting room outside and I would say to the child, in here you can say anything you'd like and you can do a lot of the things you'd like. And then I watch and wait to see how they engage with things and I follow their lead entirely. So some children will immerse themselves immediately in play. What age group would you say you'd start like that with? For me, it's more about developmental age than chronological age. Sure. So if a child's experienced um, significant um, trauma or significant developmental delay or has uh, special needs, then they might have the capacity to do this for longer. But generally, 2 to 10-year-olds, I find the most appropriate age to be doing this sort of work with. Yeah, wow. So, but some children, I can do it for much longer if they've got sort of delays in certain ways. So. And so what would you then start to, to notice? I mean, obviously every, every presentation is so, so different, but would a child just sort of, you know, pause and sit around for a little while, kind of look at whether they can, you know, push the boundaries, you know, can I get up and have a look? You know, they'd probably potentially mm -hmm. even ask, can I play with that or something? How, how does that space sort of uh, uh, look? I'm, um, you know, intrigued. It's really, it's different for every child it really is um, and there's a, a variety of different um, ways that they might engage with the room with the toys with me even just in themselves it might depend on how they're feeling that particular day but the theory of play therapy suggests that given the given a permissive and a supportive environment children will play out children will demonstrate through their play literally or metaphorically the things that are important and the things that are concerning for them so they will play out in a way that we might talk out, 
the things that might be troubling us or the things that we might be wishing or hoping for. So it's, it's, it provides, the toys are the, the vehicle through which children can communicate what's, um, what's important to them. So play therapy for me allows children in the most developmentally appropriate and sensitive way to express to explore and to resolve the challenges that they might be facing. And what are the sorts of things that that um, you'd be looking for? Because obviously there has to be a very trained eye, there has to be a very trained ear, um, you know, someone who's trained in, in, in being able to kind of look at all those a- a- aspects of being in, you know, I suppose uh, sitting alongside someone who's playing um, and a little person, you know, might begin to play with something. What are you listening for? What are you hear? What are you looking out for? What are you, what are you trying to kind of, um, uh, I suppose what I'm trying to ask is what's going on in your mind um, while mm-hmm. the, the, the young person's playing? I guess I'm, I'm attempting to do a few things. So Gary Landreth, who's really championed in this century child-centred play therapy, argues that there's four healing messages that we communicate to children. And this also perhaps communicates my stance or what I'm attempting to do in this moment with a child. And one is to really hear the child, to listen very carefully and watch really carefully what they're doing, how they're playing, how they're interacting with me, what mood they might be in so to listen and watch very carefully and to communicate that hearing them through my verbal reflections and my response to their invitations to play also my capacity to set limits if they're doing things that are not safe so to be able to be appropriately responsive comes from being able to hear them well communicating that I am here with them very present in this moment I'm not doing anything else I'm not taking notes not checking my phone, I'm not talking to their parent, I'm just here with them. So this unconditional connection is an important healing capacity, I believe, too. So that's the second thing I'm trying to be very present to, to push out of my mind anything that could be a distraction so I can just be totally present in this moment to be able to notice as much as I can. And the last two of the healing messages are to be able to hold and to communicate to the child that I care and that I understand. And through careful observation and careful reflection and tracking of what the child's doing, I'm communicating to them that they can make choices for themselves, that they can be appropriately and um, age-sensitively responsible for choices that they make and what they do. And they, while there's a lot of things that they can't control in their life, there's a lot of things that they actually can control. And I think that it's this permission-giving and this allowing of that really helps children articulate what's important for them and and I guess that's a really big part of this work too. Can you talk a little bit more about um, the things you would notice that um, might give you clues that you might want to, uh, when I say clues meaning they might give you leads that you might kind of want to follow up on or explore or mm-hmm. give extra room. I'm not sure what the right language is so I do apologise. I'm kind of fumbling around <laughs> no, here. No, that's okay. Yeah, I think that's a really perfect um, uh, question from someone who works from a CBT and a language-based way with adults, to be completely honest, because what I work really hard to not do from a child-centred perspective is to lead. So I get ideas of what's important for the child, but I'm not following up on those with a question or with a challenge or with a suggestion or with an invitation because I want to follow the lead of the child. And one of the reasons that I critically don't do that, so a child might be playing out um, in a somewhat aggressive manner. Some They might be bashing something and they're doing it in a way that's not going to hurt the thing that they're bashing, but they're expressing some anger. So what I'm doing is reflecting. I can see that that makes you really mad in an appropriately matched tone of voice. So what I'm doing is let the child know that I see what their experience is. And in that, they're encouraged to talk about that more, to share that more, to show that more if they want to. And if they don't, then I'm not pursuing it any further. I think one of the challenges in working with children is being able to recognise and respect that their window of tolerance is much smaller than ours. So what can happen when children start playing out things that are the presenting issue? I can go, oh, great, now they've finally got onto it. Tell me more about that. And what that does potentially is re-traumatise children. 
So when we ask questions, when we lead, when we direct processes, particularly for children to be experienced really challenging situations, what I can do is hold them in a space that they can't tolerate and then they don't want to come back. 99% of children that I see for play therapy love coming and want to come back. 99% of clinicians that I talk to or work with or train who don't use play therapy have children who do not want to come and who often don't come back. So I think it's such an engaging way of working with children, not only because it's fun for them, it is respectful of their language and uses their language to communicate and to resolve issues, but critically it's respectful of their pace and of their tolerance of challenge. So I think as adults, we have a thousand ways of coping with difficult things. We can compartmentalise, we can distract ourselves, we can talk ourselves through it. Kids don't have that capacity. And as soon as they start remembering or revisiting something, if they don't have strategies to manage, they get overwhelmed and we make it worse rather than better. So one of the particular um, benefits for me in working with very fragile children sometimes or children have experienced really terrible experiences is that this is the most respectful way that I could ever work. Mm. And that's why I really love it too. It feels, and I don't know if I'm interpreting probably only an aspect of what you've said and, 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 and um, what you're trying to convey, but it almost feels like when you're sitting alongside the, the young person or child, you're uh, in some sense helping put words to some of the things that they're doing not in a leading way, but just a, in an observational way. Um, Absolutely. Yep, that's exactly right, Nash. might be kind of just narrating, um, as you mm-hmm. would if you were highly curious. And, and, mm. and, you know, it might be that it might be appropriate at some point to say if, a, if, if um, there's a doll involved, for example, you know, um, riding on a, a dinosaur, you know, you might be asking... Mm-hmm. I wonder where they're going or something like that. And then the young person would, you know, come up with whatever that their next imaginative thing might be. Um, mm-hmm. uh, am I kind of capturing some of this? <laughs> Definitely getting closer. So getting again, closer. Um, <laughs> I don't ask questions. Okay. So, so what I would do be is I'll, questions. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I wouldn't even say where they're going. What I, what I would do is I would notice that, and I wouldn't even call it the girl on the dinosaur okay. because I don't know if this is a dinosaur and this is a girl. This could be mummy in her new car or this could be me on my broomstick or it could be anything. So I'm very careful not to label anything that the child is doing or is picked up or is playing with until the child has. So I would just refer to those things as this or that until such time as the child's named it. So let's say the child has said, um, yes, I'm getting on my dinosaur. And so they've named it. So I'm going to say, oh, you're on the dinosaur. And then I wait. Because if she wants to tell me more about that, she will. But if I say, where are you going? Then, I, then I'm leading that. It's then very subtle. Every time I ask a question, it's a lead. So I'm not leading at all. I'm just noticing. And then if she wants to talk, and if I'm engaged and interested, she's much more likely to want to tell me anyway. But she makes that choice when, if, and how she's ready to. So she might abandon that at that point, and then she might become the girl on the dinosaur going into the future. She might dress up as that and embody it. So she can choose the way she expresses it. She can talk about it. She can play it out. She can dress up as it. She can sing it. She can do what's right for her. It's her language. It's her form of expression she's choosing. So that's why I avoid asking questions. No, that makes that makes much more sense. So the the narrative um, is 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 okay so long as we're not placing judgment or um, a a form of it because we don't know what their imagination is holding that as in in their form and we could at mm. that point actually sway them and that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to actually just sit with them. And so, you know, the the object becomes, you know, it or they until there's a decision from the young person as to what that is. Um, and yeah, at that point, right. obviously, it would be natural to reflect back that that's what that is because you've adopted and accepted mm-hmm. their position. Yeah, um, that's exactly right. Yeah, And then in some sense, yeah. you just wait patiently for wherever their imagination goes next. Yeah, yeah. And the, the more I wait and the more I genuinely believe that 
their, their story will emerge if and when they're ready to, the more they feel trusting of themselves and the more they have control over this story. And I think as adults working with children, we're very well-meaning and we want to protect children, we want to look after children, but sometimes we end up doing for children things that they can do for themselves. So if a child is really struggling with something, uh, in 90% of situations in my life, I'm likely to go over and offer help or, you know, ask if they want some assistance or do something for them. But in play therapy, I wouldn't. So I'd let them struggle as long as they possibly could so they can figure out how to do it for themselves. And children genuinely value that opportunity to really learn and develop at their own pace and in their own way. And play therapy, this form of play therapy really allows that too. As I said, this is just one of many forms of play therapy. Sure. But it's in some ways it's the most challenging to learn because it really means me redefining what my relationship to helping is, my relationship to relating to children, and most critically my relationship to leading children, which is what, you know, productively we need to do as adults in our community. We need to be able to lead children. We need responsible, kind of adapted children who put on their shoes in the morning and eat their breakfast and go to school and come home and do their homework and get on with their brothers and sisters and all those things we need to help teach and train and guide and lead toward but therapeutically if our goal is to allow children to express in their own language at their own time at their own pace then the less questions that I ask the less I lead and the less I label the more effective I'll be and the more children want to come back hmm. this is going to be quite naive because obviously I'm still trying to work my you know my uh, old paradigm across to to your paradigm um would it be accurate to say you'd spend most of the session with the young person in that explorative play and and you know allowing them to feel comfortable and um you know doing skill development mastery acquisition imaginative play um talking about whatever it is they want to talk about playing about mm -hmm. playing in whatever um, tickles their fancy on that particular uh, day um, and you I suppose assist them um, through being curious so they're giving them permission to do all those things and, and I'm assuming they also want to engage with you because people in play often want to play with others um, uh, how much would you be playing I mean if, sorry my apologies I've asked two questions how long would that be going on for um, the assumption of the whole the whole time um, please let me know what that is. Uh, and secondly, how, how engaged would you be if you're asked to, to you know, get involved? Are you still getting involved fully and completely as you would with, you know, your own children, um, you know, having a play but still just maintaining those boundaries around not going out and, you know, uh, uh, labelling, um, placing uh, attributes to things that you're not aware, uh, you know, may or may not be there for the young person? Two great questions. So to answer your first one about how long, the length of time of the session depends on the age and the maturity level of the child. So younger children I might only see for half an hour. Older children I would see for 45 or 50 minutes. If a family has travelled a distance and there's a couple of siblings, I would tend to see them all together to start with just to let everyone know what we're all doing and what's going to happen today. And then I would see the children one at a time, maybe for 20 or 30 minutes each, again, depending on what we've arranged. Um, in terms of duration, um, it's like any length of time of counselling. It might be a short or a medium time. I tend not to see children for excuse me, for very long periods of time, but I would certainly want to see them usually for a couple of months, depending on what the presenting issue is. If it's something quite serious and long-standing, clearly the therapy is going to take longer too. So it depends a little bit on that. If I'm working from a child-centred perspective exclusively and this is all I'm doing, this is all I'm doing. So it doesn't sound like much, but incredibly it's powerful and I think it is still the most effective and powerful way of working with younger children. If I'm trying to teach a skill then I can do that in a much more structured and directed way but it's my agenda or it's some adult's agenda that someone has deemed this useful for this child and it might be but it might not be so even those of us who are really close to kids and really get kids never ever know fully what another person's experience has been so it's not until I'm really kind of 
in a relationship that's trusting and caring enough that the other person is going to feel safe to share and to explore and to resolve those issues. So if I ask questions, if I direct too much, if I lead, then I deny that child the opportunity to feel safe enough to be able to really show me in what's right for them. So there are plenty of other ways to work and, and many of us who work as play therapists in Australia and in fact internationally I've got colleagues all over the world who do play therapy work can work eclectically. So they might use this child-led or non-directive approach as an assessment window as a way of building engagement and rapport and then start to work a little bit more strategically or in a more directed way. But I always use the example of if I'm trying to teach children about emotions and I have a, a chart on the board or I have a whiteboard and I draw faces and I say, this is angry or this is you know, this is what angry looks like, let's do angry. And we pull the face and we talk about a time we might have felt angry or we play a game, we can roll a dice and every time it lands on three, we have to talk about a time we felt angry. We've got lots of strategic games like that we can play, which is certainly more engage, engaging for children and older kids, teenagers, and just talking about it. But it's still quite strategic and directed, those sort of activity-based play uh, strategies in therapy. If through feeling frustrated with something and it might be that they're having a really good time and they don't want to go and the time's up and I've given them a time warning and we're getting close to the time and I say to the child you know our time's nearly up for today I'll see you next week and they say I don't want to go and they get really angry they're really angry right now and what I can do in the moment is do some limit setting with them and work in the context of their emotion in the room the benefit of child-led play allows real emotions to come up in real time and allows me to see, to notice and to manage them in real time. And I think that's a much better skill opportunity for development than doing it hypothetically. Let's make a face and remember a time. Because children are so living in the now that getting to imagine anything else is, is not real for them. So it just makes sense, again, in terms of that culture of childhood and their perception and relationship with time to work in real time, which is why I prefer to do child-centred play. It makes much more sense to me that because I, I've always thought about, and this, this isn't mine, but I can't remember who said it, um, where you know, part of the role of a parent um, or, or a caregiver is to help children with uh, packaging their emotions and feelings and, and you know, to sorting them out. Um, you know, because they're not sure how to do so um, so well, but it kind of has to happen in real time because we're packaging them when they're feeling them, not packaging them, you know, in theory. Um, and we all know, you know, even working with adults, working with uh, theory just doesn't cut it. You've got to get, you know, that those emotions and feelings and that experience in the room to, you know, be doing the 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 um, heavy lifting and so I, I'm in full full um, appreciation and, and understanding as to why that would be um, you know, the way to go at least you know I, I think it's it's wise and makes lots of sense what what would you be hoping to uh, and you can see I'm kind of still wrestling in this space uh, what would you be hoping to see uh, uh, with a child um, and uh, you know, maybe you can offer a uh, a case that you can recall. Um, obviously, you know we'll always speak in a in a confidential way. Um, you know, protecting everyone. But what would you hope to see? Would would um be what would be the things that you would like to see from a young person coming in with you know, let's say one or two, you know, caregivers who are there who you know present with. X and maybe I'll let you kind of decide whether it's you know anxiety, depression, there was a trauma, there's been a separation in the families, whatever whatever the the, the um, matter is. What would you hope to see over a course of whether it be a couple of months, a few months, um, you know, however you kind of assess what would be most appropriate for that young person? Very simply, I would hope for positive change, and I think that really looks different for every child and every family. I think what I'm always hoping for is a greater understanding and respect among everybody. So the, when now I work in private practice, all parents who come and see me are really genuinely interested in and wanting the best for their kids. And sometimes they just don't understand what their experience has been because they might be in a difficult emotional situation too. So I get many parents who 
um, are no longer living together, they've experienced a divorce or separation and they're concerned about their child. The child might be behaving badly at school, they might be getting into trouble, they might be sad or withdrawn, but definitely the child has had some emotional response to and reaction to the parent separation. So what I want to be able to do is to hear from both parents and it might be that they're not able to sit in the room together, so I'll have two separate sessions or speak with them on the phone to get a full picture from both of them about what their concerns are and then to work with the child or young person in a way that's most developmentally appropriate to allow them to, in their own language, in their own time, express what their concerns are and to figure out what they need to do to manage this because this is not as much as they might like their parents to get back together. That's not going to happen in most situations. So what can they do to manage this better? I can give them a list of 20 coping strategies, which may or may not work, and that's, I might work in that slightly more directive way with older kids, but with younger children, it's really helping them in the moment of play and through different creative forms of expression, helping them realise through noticing curiously and reflecting what they're doing, what they get pleasure out of. So to give them a sense that while their world is no longer kind of as it was and it's challenging for them, there's still things that they can feel good about and can do for themselves. So part of finding coping strategies is actually, again, in real time, figuring out things that you particularly like to play with maybe and maybe things that you really don't want in your world but to be able to kind of manage these things um, through metaphor, through play, to be able to better cope with what's happening. So what I would want is um, I would want an indication from parents or teachers about specifically what their concerns are at the outset and at the finish of treatment I'd like to be able to hear from them that those things that were concerning them are concerning them less or have gone for the child and that, that that child is happier and more content in themselves given a difficult situation that might have happened. So that's that would be success for me. In some sense... Uh it's almost like when working with adults, there there can be kind of this big question mark for for adults themselves, particularly those who are kind of scratching their heads and going, "What what could a psychologist offer?" Uh, there, there's the understanding among psychologists that talking about one's challenge, difficulty, you know, with someone who's highly curious, um, is non-judgmental. Um, is is client centred and allows that person to appreciate and understand their situation, you know, um, from whatever perspective. And yeah, they might stretch their 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 thoughts or inquire a little bit more with an adult than you may um, with a young person. But through doing that, there can be a sense of better understanding and uh, appreciation of the situation, or even sometimes better. Well, so a greater confidence in oneself through that um, and and through that it, it, it's difficult to go out and measure has this person gone out and and done something measurably different but they can certainly feel a lot better within themselves which you know can obviously have lots of uh, um, uh, 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 positive improvements across the board and in some sense the language, going back to what we were discussing at the start, the language of a child is play. And if we can allow children to play in their most uh, genuine, um, free, safe, um, encouraged and, and, and um, nurtured way, they themselves will get something what potentially something like what well, was similar to what an adult would would get but slightly different culture there one being of playing the other one being of of talking about you know their their challenges am i getting closer yeah i think you, you you're really getting close now and i love the words you use <laughs> genuine safe uh, free caring nurtured that's exactly what it is and play therapy is not just play i think from the outside, it looks like children are just playing, but the skills that a play therapist uses are not the same skills that you would use with most children in most no. situations. In fact, it takes a really long time to learn it. I do an introduction two-day workshop, which is just an introduction to the theory, to the evidence, and to the skills. So we do lots of role plays. We practice it. I demonstrate it. I show videos. It's a real doing workshop. 
but it's just the beginning. People take months and years to really perfect this particular approach to play therapy. It's not just play. Even though the toys might look similar, they're carefully chosen to allow children to be able to express frustration, to be able to express curiosity, to be able to tell fantasy-based stories, real-life stories. So it's purposeful play for therapeutic game. And I think what's really critical is the relationship. And you've mentioned how critical that is with adult therapy as well. It's those core conditions of unconditional positive regard, respect and congruence that, that really form the foundation for this sort of play therapy approach too. And your earlier question about do I play or to what extent do I get involved, I think comes in here too and is very much led by the child. So I've had children who will come in and they're quite happy to play by themselves, that interact with the toys, that tell stories. Sometimes the stories sound exactly like what their parent has said the issue might have been. So there's a direct kind of corresponding map and there's a translation that's pretty clear. Sometimes it's a bit more subtle and it's working at a deeper metaphoric level. I don't play with children unless and until I'm invited into play. And at that moment of the invitation, I say yes. So a child might say, uh, we're going to play... Um, we're going to play with these and you can be the monkey and I'm, I'm going to be um, the penguins and we're going to go to the park. So I'm the monkey and I'm ready to go. So as soon as I'm handed a toy, as soon as I'm given an offer to join, I say yes and I join. But I don't join in until such time as I've been invited because that would be leading. So I don't sit on the floor and say, let's play with the penguins because that's my story rather than listening for theirs. So, again, it's a really, really child-led approach. Yeah. What sort of questions would mum, dad, caregiver, loved one ask at the end of a session and how, how would you sort of discuss and, and uh, you know, review, debrief, you know, and, and obviously um, – and, and maybe, maybe you can also share what, what you might speak – about with another colleague, another psychologist, versus what you might speak with a you know parent, in terms of you know part of maybe your formulation or what your thoughts are, versus how you might kind of assist the parent in seeing um, you know their particular situation scenario, their their young person, how they can support them best. One of the things that's really important for me to do before I see children in my initial sessions with the parents, and getting the assessment down is being really clear about how I'm going to be communicating with them and when I'm going to be touching base. So I want to stay in close contact with the parents, with the people who've brought their children in, but I don't want to do it at the end of the session. And the reason I don't want to do it straight at the end of the session is that I've just had this magic moments with this child. We've engaged, they felt safe and comfortable. So I don't want to then put them in the waiting room and get their parent in and spend an hour with their parent because that would completely undo any of that safety I've just built up. So what I say to the parents, after the first session, I invite them in and we have a quick chat in the room and I would say, it's been great working with your son or daughter today and this would be a very typical first session. We've got to know each other a bit and we've had a bit of a play. And that's all I would say to the parent in front of the child. But the child hears me say that. And then I would contact the parent as we had arranged. So depending on what the presentation is, how anxious the parents might be, I might phone them that night, I might email them. We'd have a, a, another follow-up meeting after a couple of sessions. I get their feedback, their perception of what's happening, and then I give them feedback around the themes of play and anything that I'm concerned about that I think they can help strategically with. So I would give some support and advice at that point, but not straight after the session. Yeah, makes sense. Absolutely. Because in actual fact, that, that's what's so inviting to the young person and hence why they want to come back. Um, mm. and, and in actual fact, to go out and interrupt that break that, um, and, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable being in a strange waiting area without your, you know, parent and um, that, that's not going to be safe whatsoever. They need to safely go from parent to the, um, you know, to the therapist and then, back to the parent or caregiver um, and so they're in safe hands the whole time and, and yeah, that, that makes exactly lots of right. sense. To, to tell you a, a small de-identified story, I, I was seeing a mother a couple of months ago with three sons and they'd all been victims of, of domestic violence and dad was long gone from the picture and she was concerned about some of the lasting effect that it had on these boys' behaviour at school. They were starting to play out some of this a little bit and she brought the three of them in and the youngest was 
three, the next one was about six and the older one was about nine and they all came in together and I had a meeting and told them a little bit about what I did. Mum had told me in a very truncated way in front of the children about why they were there so they were really clear what I knew, what she was bringing them for. She didn't go into the depth that she went into it in that assessment period that I had with her prior to the children being there. Kids don't need to hear all of the nasty stuff all over again, but just a summary of that was enough. And then I said, you know, who'd like to come first? I'm going to see you each for about 15 minutes today. And the younger one had already started playing. So was spent some time with him and then after 20 minutes he went outside and then the older one sort of came in and the middle one was not so sure. And when I came out of that second session with the older child, he was hiding behind the lounge in the waiting room and uh, he said to his mum, I don't want to go with her. I don't want to talk about it all. And the older one leaned over and in a whisper that is never a whisper because children whisper so loudly, it's okay, she doesn't even ask any questions about dad. And then he looked up and he said, okay, I'll come in. So he came in and played and played out what was of concern to him, but he wouldn't have been able to do that if I'd asked him a thousand questions. So I think kids really respond to the ability to be able to use a language that's comfortable for them and to only talk about, to only share, to only play out what they want to. I think we somehow force that children are always reluctant clients. Children are never ringing me saying, are you free at four o'clock on Thursday afternoon? I'm five and I've got my mum's credit card. Yeah, of course they're referred from others they're, and they're reluctant clients. So until we can engage them, we actually can't do any therapy work. And if we don't engage them, then we don't do therapy work. Maybe it's not their time just because everyone thinks it's a good idea to have therapy. You know, if we spoke to each other's next of kin, I'm sure they'd tell the other of us all sorts of things that we should be working on in our own therapy but it might not be what we choose right now to do and I think we have to respect children as much as we respect adults in not forcing that they talk about certain things at certain times and in certain ways. And I imagine kids just simply cannot articulate what's important for them to, to um, you know, express to to try and appreciate, to try and understand, you know, they're, they're, they're battling with enough um, or not cognizant of how to, how to even go out and sort out what needs to be sorted out. You know, they're incredibly resilient and they'll, they'll get through, but, you know, they need some gentle, uh, compassionate hands to, to be able to do that with very specifically. Do you ever train, and just out of curiosity, uh, when I trying to say train, my apologies, uh, do you ever share this uh, narrative play uh, assisting in sort of following the journey with the young person with parents to to try and engage with their kids in, in, in that way, at least for periods, you know, where obviously mums and dads can't can't do that all, all day, every day, but not by any means. Um, and obviously there's a you know, hell of a lot of training that goes with it. But uh, is that something that you might discuss with some parents to you know take 20 minutes out to um be be you know at the young person's level and to just engage with immense curiosity um being sort of you know child-led um you know for for periods of time so there is that safe place with the parent too i think it's a really beautiful way of supporting parents to build and to deepen relationships with their children and as you say, it's not a parenting strategy. It's not something that you would want parents to be doing all the time, to be just leading children, letting children lead. Parents have a very responsible job to educate and support and to feed, clothe and to nurture children in many ways. But I think this is a really powerful way of letting the child know that they're deeply loved and cared for and they can sometimes make decisions and choices for themselves. Not They can't do everything they want to do, but they can do many things that they'd like to do. And as you're suggesting, even 20 minutes a week, I think can be really powerful. And some great research coming out of the US to suggest that filial therapy, which is play therapy conducted by parents, has great outcomes for not only the relationship, but for also children's development. And some colleagues of mine, Sue Bratton and others, um, have run these trials in jails and have found that even when parents are separated from children, they can still have close and important and nurturing bonds when they when they communicate in ways that are respectful of and supportive of and allowing of the child to lead. That's absolutely incredible, isn't it? Mm. 
Can you talk a little bit about the research and, and what it generally does try and, and, and look at? I know that uh, in, in, in the article that I read, um, there was a study that I think almost looked like a, a meta-analysis that looked at 100 or, or so um, you know, pieces of research around the globe um, and, and, and mm-hmm. looked at the, you know, I suppose the efficacy or the, um, you know, the, the value of, of doing play therapy. Can you talk about that a little bit? So back in 2005, um, Sue Bratton with her colleagues, um, Bratton, Ryan and Jones did a meta-analytic review and found in the 50 years prior to that year, 93 different studies that had been done, um, outcome, controlled outcome studies at least, some of them were RCTs, that looked at the usefulness of play therapy with children. And what they found was that 80% of children did better after receiving play therapy than those that hadn't received play therapy. So it had a really, really high efficacy rate. They also found that play therapy that was child-led or non-directive yielded better outcomes than therapy that was directed or therapist-led. They also found that filial play therapy, so play therapy conducted by parents, had better outcomes than play therapy conducted by professionals trained in play therapy, which, again, shouldn't surprise us because parents have pre-existing and ongoing relationships with children so they can access them a lot. And hopefully they've got that core relationship of care that that can um, help with that too. So that's just one of many studies. There's been many more done since. Um, Play therapy is a really established profession in North America, in South Africa, in uh, parts of Europe and growing in Australia, which is really great. So there's probably five peak bodies of play therapists in Australia at the moment. We have one master's program at Deakin University and we have a range of certificate and postgraduate courses around Australia too. So there's plenty of ways that mental health professionals can get into the field, but it's really, really recommended to do further training in it and not just um, read a book and get some toys. So because it is such a specific and such... Um, such an important area of work, um, further training is really highly recommended. And I know that you offer some some training and obviously you've got uh, an immense amount of experience. Can you tell us a little bit about the training that you do, where people can find you, uh, what they can expect to to uh, see in your training as well? Because I, I know that there would be a lot of listeners out there um, you know, who are psychologists or counsellors who, who want to be involved. Um, and, 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 you know, this is their, their space of passion. So I'm sure they're going to want to find out more details about that. Um, so maybe, yeah, you can tell us a little bit about your, your sort of work. Sure, Nish. So I am the clinical director of Sydney Centre for Creative Change and we run over 30 different short courses in creative therapies around Australia each year. Most of them are in Sydney, but we have some in Melbourne, in Hobart, in Brisbane, in Perth, uh, and in Adelaide, so most um, most of the centres around Australia host courses. Um, probably the the most frequent one that we run is one that I do, which is art and play therapy. So it's a two day workshop that's skill based, interactive, and experiential. So you can expect to learn some theory about play therapy, some evidence for it, see demonstrations of it and have a chance to do it in safe and supported ways. So always options to not do it, but um, lots of learning and lots of practical skill development. So it's one of a number of different courses that we run. We've got a drama therapy course coming up in Australia in a couple of weeks. Um, In Sydney, we've got a creative mindfulness course coming up. So we have a variety of different uh, workshops that we run for mental health professionals who work across the age span, but the art and play is specifically for working with children. Lovely. And I see you've got some books behind you as well. Um, are there any specific books that you might say, um, you know, are, are really good, you know, starting blocks, if, if, if you will, because I know there's, there's going to be different sort of uh, pitched at different levels. What, what would be a good starting sort of space or, or a particular therapist or author? Um, what, what would you say, you know, it would be good for us to go out and explore ourselves? as, as a, um intro? There's two particular books that I highly recommend to everyone coming to my training, whether it's um, one of the webinars that we run or the two-day course or even the certificate course in Art and Play Therapy, which is a 200-hour course. The essential reading for that is Virginia Axline's book, Dibs, D-I-B-S. 
So that is written as a narrative. It's super easy to read and it's a lovely illustration of a child-centred therapist's work with a little boy whose behaviour is atrocious. And after she works with him, we see the change. And it's just a lovely story. So Dibs, I highly recommend, Virginia Axline. Someone who was really um, influenced by Axline was Gary Landruff. And I also recommend his book. That's probably um, the Bible of child-centred play therapy around the world at the moment. One of the things that I love about this particular text is not just the title play therapy, it's the byline the art of the relationship. So it's not about the art of the puppets or the art of the crayons. It's not about what toys you have in the room. The most important thing that we do when we work with children in play therapy is have a relationship. Some of the work that Bruce Wompold wrote about as well in terms of, you know, the, the therapeutic alliance, the, the, the connection between therapists and, and, and clients. Um, and I think, you know, we can kind of look at, Rogers, we can look at uh, Freud, um, you know, all, all the greats had a lot to say about about that and uh, no surprises that, you know, the same um, occurs for children, if, if not, you know, more importantly and, and, and hence probably why we see that it's even more powerful when parents can mm -hmm. go out and, and learn some of these, uh, uh, I suppose, um, ways of, of being you know, curious and, and, and being present and, and, and being non-judgmental and creating that really, really safe and genuine space for a, a young child to explore themselves um, and, and in doing so, find out more about themselves and also develop an even richer relationship with, you know, those closest to them. I think that's really true. If I can share a small story about that, I was seeing a father and son a couple of years ago who were having a lot of problems um, dad only, this is a slightly altered story to protect all parties, but dad was um, had limited access because of a, a difficult family situation and would see his son once every two weeks for a weekend and his son was very resentful that he didn't get to see him more often and um, it was often very conflictual, their time together, so they both came to see me and I was doing some play therapy with the son and the father wanted to understand more about what he what I was doing and wanted to learn some of these methods so he could relationship build with his six-year-old son. And this little boy loved playing with my army figures and he would sit out, he would spend at least 15 minutes positioning all of these people in a particular way and then would have a war and things would be destroyed and it was really chaotic and very conflictual and very much his inner world. And Dad would come in halfway through the session and was was watching me and for the first couple of times he found it very difficult to just sit and watch and he'd interrupt and say oh what about you get in this big tank and you could see the little boy bristle because it was his army and it was his battle and he didn't want dad to intrude and I'd sort of give dad a gentle look and he'd go oh maybe not and he'd sort of back off a little bit and and whenever dad was in the room it was um he and I on one side and we were battling dad and that's really what he felt like so dad was a the enemy, dad was the opposition, dad was the one he was throwing bombs at. And after a period of time when dad just started following his lead and tracking what he was doing and being with him rather than trying to tell him what to do and how to play, there was a shift one moment when he said, Jackie, I think you'll be the opposition, I'm playing with dad. And dad went and sat next to him and they fought against me. And it was just such a lovely moment of connection between his father and son when dad was able to let go of his need to control and manage and tell him what to do and could just be with him. It was just a magic moment. It's absolutely beautiful. I, I, I'll tell you what, I walked into our, our um, you know, chat today knowing I, I can very easily say nothing and, and, and I feel... I feel like I'm 20% there, you know, and I, I know there's probably a lot more for me to learn, but I feel like I've, I've really got to appreciate um, uh, a much deeper understanding of what play therapy is, uh, what, it, what it can look like. And I know there's, a, there's several different ways, but uh, certainly in, in the, you know, um, child play led um, you know, way. Uh, and it just sounds absolutely, absolutely beautiful. And, and, you know, I really appreciate you um, and your expertise in, in explaining it so well, because it's something that, 
you know, I, I mean, I still think I'm grappling with it, but I, I, it, it's starting to fit and it feels, it, it just feels like it's absolutely right. So, um, you know, appreciate, appreciate your time with this. Can you tell us a little bit about how people can get in contact with you? Um, you know, whether it be with your practice or whether it be with your, your, um, you know, training that you do. Sure, Nash. So I've got a website that's called Sydney Centre for Creative Change and that has my contact de- details on the contact page. Any emails or inquiries come directly to me so people can reach me that way. We've got a series of webinars that we have coming up this year which are an introduction to different forms of play therapy. Um, people can book in for those or we've got a couple on demand as well. And if anyone's interested in any of the courses that we do, the information is on the website and uh, bookings can be made online on the site too. So, But any questions, feel free to be in contact. We could speak for many, many hours, but I know that, uh, you know, you're very busy and you're, you're uh, being very, very um, uh, generous with your time today. So thank you very, very much, Jackie, and um, you know, appreciate uh, sharing this because I think many of us and, and, and uh, I imagine parents as well with, with, with young ones would probably not consider play therapy as a, as, as a viable option because we don't know what it is. And, and mm-hmm. I hope that this, um, you know, chat today helps to kind of break some of those uh, ideas because um, it certainly has for me and I'm, I'm sure it will for, for others as well. So anyone out there listening, please reach out. Um, you, I, I can uh, comfortably say it's, it, it sounds like it's incredibly grounded in, you know, that therapeutic um, uh, insightful space. It, it's, it's really centered around a science scientist practitioner model and, and you know, that, that speaks volume. So Jackie Short, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Nesh. I appreciate you being able to come and, and talk about this topic that's just so close to my heart. So thank you for your interest and your inquiry and, and your really insightful questions because I think that helps to make it easier to talk about too. So thank you very much. 